Before we start the show, we just wanted to let you know that we have some new pieces of merch that we wanted to introduce. We have a new t-shirt. It's the Paul Revere shirt. Paul Revere on horseback saying, He gave him the knife. <laughs> it was previously only available at our live dates, but now it's available at thewestwingweekly.com slash merch. You're going to want that shirt. It was drawn by Jess Gupta, my friend who told the original story about he gave him the knife. The person who said he gave him the knife originally on our podcast. So it all comes full circle. What else? Well, in honor of finally reaching the episode 25 on our podcast, we're also very happy to introduce our very first pieces of merch for babies. Yes. Babies come with hats, Toby tells us, and therefore we decided to make some baby hats. You can finally have a baby hat. It's a nice gender neutral white hat that says what's next on it. And in addition to the baby hat, we've also got West Wing Weekly onesies and kids' tees. The onesies and the kids' tees answer President Bartlett's question, what's next? They say, I'm what's next. That's right. You can get all of this stuff at thewestwingweekly.com slash merch. We're really excited for you to see it. And there's just a two-week window here, folks. So jump on that new merch right away. Go to thewestwingweekly.com slash merch. And now... On to our episode. The West Wing Weekly is sponsored by ZipRecruiter. Are you hiring? Well, every business needs great people and a better way to find them. Something better than just posting your job online and praying for the right people to see it. So if you're hiring, check out ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter revolutionized hiring. Their technology finds great candidates for you. It learns what you're looking for, identifies people with the right experience, and invites them to apply to your job. ZipRecruiter will blow your mind. And right now... It'll blow your mind for free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash West Wing. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash West Wing. Check it out. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. We're back. It's the West Wing Weekly. I'm Joshua Molina. <laughs> and I'm Rishi K. Sherway. <laughs> you told me to go first. Mm -hmm. Today, we're talking about Season 4, Episode 3. It's called College Kids. The teleplay is by Aaron Sorkin, the direction by Alex Graves, and the story provided by Deborah Kahn and Mark Goffman. Two new names. Two new names, yes. Two wonderful writers, great people, very fond memories of them both. Deborah Kahn would go on to co-executive produce Grey's Anatomy for many seasons, and a Vinyl on HBO. Mark Goffman's work includes executive producing Bull and White Collar and Sleepy Hollow. So uh, mm. both have gone on to very busy and successful careers. This episode first aired on October 2nd in the year 2002. Coming up later in this episode, we're going to be joined by two different guests. We'll hear from John King Jr., who was the former education secretary appointed under President Obama. And we'll have a conversation with Amy Mann who appears in this episode as herself, singing a cover of James Taylor's Shed a Little Light. The first guy also played Jim Harper on The Newsroom. No, I'm thinking of John Gallagher Jr. <laughs> I always get those two guys mixed up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, now it makes sense to me. Last time when you said to John Gallagher Jr. how much you appreciated his <laughs> community college action plan. Right, uh, yeah, that was a faux pas. I was embarrassed. I just thought it was a weird inside joke I didn't get, but now, mm. now it makes sense. No. A lot of people, by the way, seem to have been a bit of a bombshell, a bit of a scoop, a story that we broke that Tyler from 20 Hours in America 
is the guy is Jim Harper from the newsroom. Like that, that seems to have been a fact. I'm sure many people knew about it, but fewer people than I expected from the fandom. There were hardcore fans that seemed to have been, oh my God, I thought I, I never knew, or oh, he looked familiar. There was a lot of that. Yeah, it was less than 100% of our listeners. Right. And so that was surprising. <laughs> yes. Fewer than 100%, less than mm. 100%. I think less than, yeah. Less than in this case. Anyway, okay. Let me hit you with a synopsis. Oh yeah, please do. I'm going to give you the choice. Do you want the TV Guide, the NBC, or the Warner Brothers synopsis? Renopsis is not an option. It's not an opsis. Okay, you're really FaceTiming it in these days. <laughs> okay, I'm going to go with Warner Brothers. Warner Brothers. Bartlett's staff, President Bartlett, Warner Brothers, please. Bartlett's staff prepares a legal team to deal with the inquiry into Bartlett's involvement in the Kumari assassination. The country of Kumar is manufacturing evidence to implicate Israel, which could lead to war. The staffers cautiously approach Leo's ex-wife, attorney Jordan Kendall, to represent Bartlett. First of all, that's not his ex-wife. I'm just jumping in here. But right. anyway, let's move on. I also thought they could have added um, manufacturing evidence to implicate Israel, which is a real country in the Middle East. <laughs> Let me continue. Meanwhile, a key judicial ruling on presidential third-party candidates causes trouble for Bartlett's campaign. Josh is upset with his girlfriend, Amy, for accepting a certain job interview. Sam, Toby, and Josh concoct a radical new idea to help people pay for college education. And the approval of prospective executive secretary, Debbie Fitterer, is threatened when new evidence is discovered. This is kind of a misleading synopsis. Very much so. And I don't think uh, Josh and Amy are together in this episode. I was wondering about the uh, overall status between Josh and Amy. I mean, we haven't explicitly seen that they're split up. But they say, I miss you to one another, which makes it seem like... First of all, it's pretty darn wistful. And second of all, they seem to pivot off of it very quickly as if it's a uh, sensitive subject. So it seems to me they're no longer together. Oh, that's the impression I got. That's what I, I would think as well. So really, instead of calling Jordan Kendall Leo's ex-wife, they should have called Amy Josh's ex-girlfriend. Yes, there you go. If you'll allow me to jump right into that scene yeah. between Josh and Amy, there's one thing that I thought was a funny little Sorkinism, a little callback maybe, which is before we find out that Amy is working for Stackhouse, we get a little reprise of a Mandy moment with Josh. Amy says, No, you said you called Howard? Yeah, I, I have when back. referring to Stackhouse, she calls Stackhouse Howard. Right. Not that she's dating Stackhouse, but, but... it's a little tip off of... Yeah. And we can recognize it because, you know, keen viewers will remember that when Mandy referred to her candidate by his first name, that tipped off Josh to let him know that she was actually... Well, actually, I think in that instance, it let him know that she was dating him, but it suggested there was more to the relationship, a familiarity. Good catch. That flew right over my head. I wish I had picked up on that. I should have. <laughs> Okay, let's go. What were you going to say? Let's go back to the I was beginning. just going to say, overall, this almost feels to me like 20 Hours in America Part 3. It's coming right on the heels of the other two time-wise. It's sort of like there's not a much of a beat missed, which is interesting. In fact, the uh, opening title card says, That Morning. When they go to the Situation Room, it says, The White House Situation Room, That Morning. And it's a little bit confusing if you're not binge-watching it, because... It's unclear what the antecedent to that is. But if this is the first episode you've ever seen, <laughs> right. what the hell does that mean? What morning? Yeah. It's really in relation to the previously on, they walk into the thing, but then yeah, it's, it's, fair it's that morning. But yes, it's absolutely, it's, the president even says, you know, the thing that you saw at the end of the last episode is happening right now. He said, 
Toby Ziegler and Josh Lyman missed the motorcade in Indiana yesterday. It's taken them 20 hours to get home. They're walking into D.C. right now. Doesn't matter. So we open in the sit room, scene in the sit room, and uh, I feel like the button of this one doesn't land the way it's meant to, unless I'm missing something. Because we have a very serious group of people in the sit room, and Bartlett is kind of, as he does sort of throughout this entire episode, sort of cracking not great jokes and making light of very serious and solemn situations. And then he and Leo kind of get into it. Leo's not really enjoying the attempted humor or the lightness of his attitude and tells him to hunker down. And then it seems to me like this final moment in the sit room that's supposed to be like a real zinger that leads us into the credits is this thing about why there's constant war in the Middle East. It's because it's incredibly hot and there's no water. And then he's like, I'm hunkered down. But I don't quite, I didn't get the import of the moment of like, why does that prove like, oh, you think my eye's not on the ball? Well, I've got a little anecdote <laughs> about the climate in the area. Like, I didn't, isn't that supposed to land somehow? Yeah, I didn't get that last section either. I thought the history teacher story was weird. And then again, he's, he says, I'm hunkered down. I'm going to East Lansing. We're going to need a lawyer. But we haven't yet heard why he's going to East Lansing. And so that as one of these bullet points of what he's giving to Leo really doesn't, that one is just a throwaway. <laughs> yeah. In fact, it's almost even worse than that, now that you remind me, because it's kind of like, you think I'm not paying attention? Well, here's a complete <laughs> non sequitur. Well, I'm going to tell a really weird anecdote and then I'm going to exit having accomplished nothing here. I'm hunkered down. I plan on getting tomato soup for lunch <laughs> later. I have to call my mom. Peace out. <laughs> We're going to need a lawyer. Cue the credits. Uh, yeah, it falls a little flat. The funny thing, too, is that Leo keeps getting annoyed at the president for not paying attention, for making light of the situation, joking around. But then he turns around and does the exact same thing to Jordan Kendall. He literally uses potential nuclear scenarios as a pickup. <laughs> I don't know how he doesn't take his own feelings towards the president in the very same room and then apply them to himself. Well, there he is. At least he's trying to score. That's an entirely different kettle of beans, and we can have that discussion, but history has shown that if you just wait and tell it to a divorce lawyer, you can have half my stuff. I don't want half your stuff. You don't know some of it. And again, we have to go back to Margaret's interject from before. Look, don't, she's at work. It's a very serious situation. Yes. Like when Leo was trying to hit on her at the hearing. It's like, no, don't ask. Particularly given the headlines of recent days and weeks, the Leo stuff played poorly for me in this watch. Yes. Like, dude, you're literally trying to use your position and the power imputed to you because you've got like a handprint that gets you, (laughs) handprint readout that gets you into the sit room. Yeah. And again, Jordan's just trying to be professional and he's flirting with her. He's joking about actually what he's going to order for lunch. (laughs) Right, (laughs) And she's taking the situation as seriously as it deserves, which is what, I don't know, a little hypocrisy from Leo. Yeah, and a little sexual harassment. (laughs) Um, There's also, I think, there's some um, security protocols I have questions about, because first there's a brief little moment when they're talking about lunch and he's talking to Jordan. Yes, and it turns out Margaret's listening in. Margaret's listening in, and she even starts to say, no, he was talking about, like, she's yes, going to say, no, he was talking about the assassination of Sharif. Exactly. Yeah. I'm like, well, yeah. Margaret? What kind of clearance does Margaret have? And then later, she does beep in, right after Leo says, We put 14 bullets in his chest on an airstrip in Bermuda. It's helpful to start saying it out loud. 
Yeah. I thought you might want to know that there's a message here. She's like fucking Alexa, right? <laughs> She's always listening. <laughs> and you should assume no matter what you say. Uh, uh, oh, sorry. Alexa, stop. <laughs> I forgot I have, I have one in my room. So that proving my point, great. Margaret is, I think, the precursor to A-L-E-X-A. <laughs> I can spell now, Josh. I didn't quite get that. What were you trying to ask me? <laughs> so, yeah, I don't think she should be able to buzz in and hear what's being discussed in the sit room. That seems like mm-hmm. a breach of protocol to me. <laughs> that's, pro- that's true. I do love the wrinkle of Kumar saying it was Israel. Mm, yes. That's a place they didn't need to take it, a complication they didn't need to give us. And I mean, it's so messy. I really like that. Yeah, I agree. And somehow they know it was the U.S., I noticed a weird found moment, I want to call it. On Air Force One, CJ finishes briefing the reporters, and then she walks out to talk to Bruno, and she kind of hits a wall. (laughs) 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 It's kind of fantastic. She's sort of, I don't know if she loses her balance, or hey, she is on a plane, supposed to be flying. Maybe maybe it's a brilliant piece of physical performance, but Mm -hmm. she kind of loses her balance a little bit, hits the wall, and carries on. And, you know, I don't know if that was the best take. And they're like, eh, no, it looked fine. Or maybe it's more interesting because that's the kind of thing that happened. It's weirdly real because it's so odd. Right. For a second, I forgot that it wasn't on a plane. Oh, God. (laughs) I forgot that they weren't on a plane. They're not really in the air. (laughs) They're not shooting on a plane. Yeah, that's on the ground. Right. I was like, well, of course. (laughs) For a second, a second. Some splintering thought went off and wandered towards the idea of, it's impressive that she managed to do all of it without stumbling on all. (laughs) Well, I think it's why I like the moment so much is having shot on it myself. I'm so aware that you are just, you know, in a studio in a shell of a plane. And it really makes it look like she is on a plane. So it's possible it's just another piece of Janny brilliance. Alison Janny brilliance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I feel like we've just been complaining about the episode, but I'm just going to pile it on. Go ahead. Debbie Fitterer Mm -hmm. worked in the Office of Personnel. The paperwork. But she needs Sam to explain the process of the government background check. Good point. And and explain the new levels of security measures and intensity for their job as executive secretary. Hmm. She even says she knows about, you know, the SF-86 form. And so it's not like the show suddenly forgot about her previous history. But despite that previous history, she doesn't know what the GC1 is. Yeah, no, that stretches credibility. I think you're right. Well, I think this thing altogether, I think this episode is fine. I liked it fine. It was okay. But it sort of feels to me like Aaron completed the one-two punch of, I guess, what was originally aired as a two-parter. And now he's kind of... Reloading. Yeah, exactly. A little bit of a reload. He's inching things forward a little bit. He's moving things forward in plot. There are, I think, a couple very good scenes and great moments. And uh, when Bartlett essentially gives an extemporaneous speech. Joy cometh in the morning, scripture tells us. I hope so. I don't know if life would be worth living if it didn't. I like that scene very much. And, you know, and it's not a bad episode of West Wing where things are kind of inch forward and things, you know, holds your interest and nothing momentous happens, but you get a scene like that. Like, that's enough for me to go like, okay, yeah, decent episode. What I enjoy most about that scene is is less the speech itself and more the fact that the president doesn't know that he's going to do it off the cuff and he's just going to talk and then sam just throws him this this quote from scripture yeah exactly in the morning and then he takes it and is able to 
spin it together into this sort of golden thread. I think I'm just going to talk a little. Yeah. yeah. I also like that I think Aaron's writing and Martin's performance put over the sense that he could be coming up with this on the spot. There's a repetition of phrases as he works yeah. himself towards the next thing he wants to say. And of course, he starts with a quote from a psalm. And it has a little bit of preacher's feel to it, kind of working himself into the message and, and picking up momentum and the repetition of the phrase. Not nearly enough. Is that what it is? Not yes. nearly enough. And it's got, it's got a little bit of the preacher. And uh, I like the performance. And I think Aaron's writing is spot on. You know how I've mentioned to you there are moments in the show where I can't help but sing along. This is one of those moments where it's not just the words, it's the cadence, and there's even melody to it that gets stuck in my head. And that moment, the the third not nearly enough, when he says, There isn't nearly enough, not nearly enough, not nearly enough money in our classroom, and we can do... I can't help but say, not nearly enough, along with him. It reminds me of a moment from My Fair Lady when... What? When he's teaching Eliza the sort of melody of diction... Kind of you to let me come. No, kind of you, kind of you. How kind of you to let me come. How oh, very good. Yes. Yeah. Not nearly enough. Not nearly enough. Not nearly enough. Well, now that you mentioned this, and we're talking about the rhythm and the cadence and the delivery, one of the things I like is that you know Aaron does, uh, I think, uh, his version of a baseball player pointing to the wall because he has Sam talking when they're sharing with President Bartlett what they've come up with. Right. And he talks about the rhythm, and that's a dummy phrase. It's just a placeholder and the sound. And so he's saying, you know, this stuff is as important as the content in a way. And then I'm going to show it to you in a minute when Bartlett just speaks off the cuff. Yeah. And of course, it's also classic Aaron talking about the musicality of dialogue speech. I loved that Sam gets to return to the thing that he knows after feeling a little bit like he might have been out of his element in the Oval Office. Filling in for Josh. And now you get to remember where Sam's true powers are. Not only is he a great writer, he understands the president's voice so well. He understands the way he speaks and how to write for him. Even in that moment, he can say, these aren't the right words. These are just syllables. And eventually, I'll fill that in. And right. <laughs> and also, not to get entirely hung up on the sound and cadence and rhythm and delivery, the content of what he's saying is incredibly bold. The idea, uh, you know, I don't know how well it would be received today, the idea that on the heels of what appears to be an act of hideous and destructive terrorism, that it would come out and the message is they weren't born wanting to do this. The idea of any kind of empathy or trying to even understand the kind of evil this comes from and say, whatever it is, these people didn't start this way. And how do we try to, you know, make better citizens by educating kids? It's an incredibly bold thing to say. Right. But in a way, it's kind of brilliant, given at this point, they don't have very much information about the people involved or the group involved, or there's not much to say. But I think most politicians would either make an assumption or vilify the perpetrators, the idea of bringing it around to better education is pretty clever. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And the dummy phrase that Sam and Bruno have, have for him, he's rejected that completely. He, not only is he saying, I'm not going to use those words, I'm just going to talk for a bit, because what they're suggesting is, we'll catch the perpetrators, we'll track him down, we'll punish. Right, just the standard and, you would expect to hear at this yeah, point. Yeah, and the president actively, he takes the bit about joy cometh in the morning, but he leaves all of that stuff behind. Mm-hmm. I thought there was a nice echo of Nelson Mandela in what the president says when he says, They weren't born wanting to do this. There's a quote 
from Nelson Mandela, no one is born hating another person because of the color of his skin or his background or his religion. People must learn to hate, and if they can learn to hate, they can be taught to love, for love comes more naturally to the human heart than its opposite. Beautiful. And it reminded me of that. That, by the way, again, I assume 100% of our listeners <laughs> are aware of this. Earlier this year, Barack Obama quoted that line from Nelson Mandela, or part of it, in the wake of Charlottesville along with a photo of him and some kids, right. all different backgrounds. Pretty sure I retweeted it. Mm -hmm. And that tweet is now the most popular tweet of all time. Very cool. We'll link to it. How about that? Huh. Speaking of quotes and tips of the hat, we I guess we missed in 20 Hours in America Part 2, Bartlett's line about the streets of heaven are too crowded with the angels is a pull from Tom Hanks' right. Oscar acceptance speech for Philadelphia. And uh, many people pointed that out. I know that my work in this case is magnified by the fact that the streets of heaven are too crowded with angels. We know their names. They number a thousand for each one of the red ribbons that we wear here tonight. Wish I had caught that when we were discussing it. Yeah. Sometimes we highlight moments where it feels like the characters are reciting bits of their resume or reciting bits of other people's resumes. Yes. And here we have the most <laughs> egregious version of that where Leo Leo's actually recite reading jordan's resume in the sit room and we get the full measure of her legal career maxwell school of diplomacy and international relations associate counsel u.s delegation to the united nations general counsel u.s delegation to the united nations general counsel for the united nations partner whitcomb wiley hawking harrison and kendall yeah, this is a little bit, it's like, it's, this is his, Leo's version of John Cusack in the boombox and Say Anything <laughs> something. Look at this screen, I have your whole CV on it. And there's nothing creepy about it. Right. Oh, where do you live? This is when you would die in a nuclear holocaust. What? Yeah. And also I told some military guys to pull up your personnel file right and then later in the oval office and president bartlett asks him how things are going it's like i think we might have a second date oh that's <laughs> not what you meant I'm like oh dude uh, yeah i thought you might appreciate the moment when donna lists all of the bands that we're going to play at at the rock the vote event who's it rock the vote amy man bare naked ladies chrissy hines sixpence none the richer aaron neville diamondback whale daisy chain next big thing the cruel shoes and single cell paramecium you've just been pressed. yeah my feeling was obviously you have to include bare naked ladies and amy man because we're going to see them but if you're not going to see the rest why not have the beatles <laughs> <laughs> she should have just gone really really big Mm -hmm. <laughs> and what is it what's the one she makes up the something paramecium Sing single cell paramecium there's no groovy bunch of musicians who have used that it's so terrible i guess you couldn't even use it if you were <laughs> hardcore west wing fans how would you feel if you were in the band cruel shoes and josh asks if yeah. you were a made-up band that's a little insulting <laughs> do you know cruel shoes not personally but they are a real band let's see if there's a band now called single cell paramecium they really should be it's still available for any budding musicians who want to start a joke West Wing cover band. I don't know. A Snuffy Walden cover band. You can call yourself Single Cell Paramecium. Cruel Shoes, of course, is the name of a classic Steve Martin short story. I didn't know there was... Is there really a band? I guess so. SingleCellParamecium.com. Still available. I mean, bands, you should just... Get on it. Potential band members. What about... I'm seeing a piece of merch. A band t-shirt for single cell yes. paramecium come on that's pretty good right 
That's pretty good. That is good. All right. Chris, you now have to go make it. <laughs> what kind of band is Single Cell Paramecium? What genre? And jazz trio. <laughs> Punk? We'll figure it out. Okay. Stay tuned for Single Cell Paramecium band t-shirt. Where were we? Oh, yeah. West Wing. That's right. I love the Agent Casper badass swagger. I could just watch him walking down a hall for an entire episode. <laughs> God, I love Clark. Early in the episode, the president says that Josh and Toby have been given a four-hour vacation. I like that how that manifests and that they don't show up for the first 15 or 16 minutes of the episode. Right. What did you think about that scene when they do finally come in and, and they both have the same idea? Did you buy it, that they would both come up with the same? I think I did buy it. What I didn't buy was that they were so surprised. Like, they just, just that night, the night before, they met this guy and they had this sort of, (laughs) I assume they chatted about it afterwards. I don't know. To me, it wasn't such a shocker. More shocking was that they were shocked. Right, exactly. What are you guys so surprised about? Remember the guy? (laughs) Remember Matt Kelly, the guy from last night, and how you guys were so knocked out by him and the way he articulated uh, what he would like to see and change and government policy. And you think they should would have come up with it together that night. (laughs) Instead, he's like, look, I wrote it down too. The part of this plot that I was most impressed by was when Toby and Josh are sort of doing the back of the envelope calculations, Mm -hmm. figuring out what Matt Kelly's potential tax liability would be. I mean, Toby knows what tax bracket he's in. I was impressed that they knew all of this stuff and really even could just do the math <laughs> there in a crowded bar to figure out, even get somewhere in the ballpark of whatever they were calculating, you know, that, that his liability would drop from 13300 to 3800 Yeah, I was curious to know how real those figures are. I think just the idea that college should be tax deductible, I think in this episode was inspired by a bill that Senator Chuck Schumer was trying to introduce, but ultimately ended up getting co-opted by the Bush administration in a way that sort of watered it down. But the watered-down version has been what we've lived with for a while. Right, and my understanding is that in January, Congress failed to renew even the watered-down version Yes, of uh, tuition and fees, federal tax deduction. Yeah. It's crazy to me, though, that to talk about education, you have to also be an expert in tax policy. Right. It doesn't make sense. Well, I was reading, too, apparently... New York State is the only state that has made college accessible for free to anybody who wants to go to four-year college. Mm. And then San Francisco has done a similar thing, too. San Francisco found the money by, I think, a tax transfer on houses that sell for over $5 million. Which is every house in San Francisco. (laughs) That includes uh, studio apartments. (laughs) Right. And they've used that to cover four years of college, I think, for anybody, I think, regardless of income, Wow, who wants it for free. And then I, Tennessee, Oregon, and Minnesota have two years covered, two-year college plans. I was watching this episode wondering whether this is an utter pipe dream they're chasing. And it seems like steps have been made in certain places to create situations where college is a lot more affordable or, in mm-hmm. fact, even free. Well, let's learn a little bit more about the realities of making college affordable and jump to a discussion with former Education Secretary John King Jr. Let's. 
In 2016, John King Jr. was appointed U.S. Secretary of Education by President Barack Obama. He served as Deputy Secretary before that. And Secretary King is now the President and CEO of the Education Trust, which works to close the gaps in opportunity and achievement for all students pre-K through college. And he's here to talk to us about this idea that Toby and Josh want to put forward of making college tuition tax deductible. Secretary King, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thanks for the opportunity to join you. This episode aired in 2002, October 2002. And I was wondering, did you happen to see it then? Were you a West Wing fan by any chance? Yes, I was a regular West Wing watcher throughout its time on on air. In 2002, were you already in education? Yeah, I was a middle school principal in 2002 and watched West Wing all the time. And it seemed very far away and different from the work I was doing doing, never imagined that I would actually be in the West Wing doing anything in particular, but watched the show when I was a teacher and a principal. And I think you rewatched this episode recently, right? Yes, I, I rewatched the episode and, um, you know, it's inspiring to watch the West Wing these days because it's very different from certainly the current administration. And it's nice to see an administration focused on expanding opportunity, which is really what Toby and Josh get excited about after their conversation with the the father at the bar. The guy last night in the bar, Matt Kelly, the one who's taking his daughter to visit colleges, he said it needs to be just a little easier. Not a lot easier, a little. Toby, every nickel spent on college tuition should be 100% tax deductible. Right. So what do you think of the plan that they want to propose on its surface and in the context of when the episode aired. What was your reaction to this idea of making every dollar of college tuition deductible? Yeah, well, you know, I was a middle school principal and and one of our goals for our students was to make sure that they were prepared to succeed in college and careers after they finished high school. So at the time, I was excited about the idea that the country could do more to make college accessible and affordable for families. You know, watching it now, I think about all the work we did during the Obama administration to try to make sure that college was affordable. Things like increasing Pell Grants to help low-income students go to college, the American Opportunity Tax Credit, which would give families up to $10,000 in tax credits towards college, moving $60 billion from banks to students and taxpayers through the direct loan program. So we were very focused on the same idea, a little bit different approach, but same idea. Okay, this is my understanding of the background of this plot point, and please correct me if I'm wrong, which I I might be. Senator Chuck Schumer had introduced a bill in 2001, the Make College Affordable Act, and it sounds sort of similar to this. It was supposed to be a you know tax break for families, and I think it would graduate up to twelve thousand dollars would be deductible, you know dollar for dollar would be deductible on their tax returns. And then what ended up happening is it was sort of co-opted by the George W. Bush administration and sort of changed, but it was watered down a bit, and then it became what we have known for the last over a decade as the tuition and fees deduction. Is that right? Huh. You know, because I was a middle school principal at the time, I wasn't really following the congressional deliberations on higher ed funding at the time. But my general recollection of the context around education tax policy is that that's right. One of the reasons I was excited to talk to you about this is because even that, that tuition and fees deduction that's been on the books since 2002 
or 2001, I think, ended in 2016. But there were also people who thought that it was bad policy to begin with, that it was regressive and wasn't actually helping families that really needed it. All of this is by way of saying, when Josh and Toby put forth this idea on the show, does it seem like pure liberal fantasy? Or is what they were proposing something that's even viable? Is it something that the government could have ever done? If Congress were amenable to it, is it something that like the country could afford? Is it, is it realistic? You know, it actually is very doable to try to have a system where you ensure college is affordable for families. I think, you know, there is a fair question about kind of which college and how expensive can the college be. So, you know, the idea that you can make it possible for students to go to any college for free, that I, I think is very unlikely. But the idea that you could ensure that if a student wants to go to public higher education, that they be able to do that either for a two-year degree or four-year degree tuition-free, that's very plausible. And you can do it more directly even than tax code changes, right? You can do something like what President Obama proposed in the America's College Promise or what a number of states are doing essentially to set some income threshold and say that you know, below that income threshold, you know that you won't have to pay tuition in the public university system. Well, what you were putting forward in the Obama administration was actually even more, much more aggressive than I think what they're pushing, right? They're not even saying that college should be free, just that the dollars spent on it should be tax deductible. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, I mean, theirs is, is more limited than what we propose in the Obama administration. But I think, you know, in some ways, this set of episodes reflects kind of enthusiasm in the American public for making sure college is accessible to everyone. When you were proposing initiatives, did you already have to know and understand where the money would come from in order to pay for an initiative? Could you propose something without necessarily knowing the exact source of the funds that it would take to make it go through? You know, at the end of the scene in College Kids, Toby and Josh are so excited about it. I'm gonna make some time with Leo and figure out a way to pay for it. Yeah. Good. Yes, and that part of the episode is very accurate. Uh, we would have to work with the Office of Management and Budget and make sure that we had a plan for every initiative, exactly how we would pay for it. You know, not every initiative, though, is about new resources. You know, one of the key issues in college access and affordability is the issue of completion, making sure that students not only get to college, but get through college with a degree. And we know that a very large percentage of the people who default on their college loans are people who started school but didn't finish. Because they don't have the degree, they can't get a good job, and so they can't afford to pay back their loans. And there's work that institutions can do, individual colleges and universities, to provide the right supports so that students actually finish. And there's work that the federal government can do to make sure that higher ed institutions are accountable for whether or not their students finish. Hmm. You know, so there's a, a set of, for example, predatory for-profit schools that for years have allowed their students not only not to graduate, but not to really get skills that help them in the marketplace at all. And one of the things we tried to do in the Obama administration was put in place an enforcement mechanism so that schools that weren't equipping students with real skills and quality degrees wouldn't continue to get federal money. 
What's your take on the father, Matt Kelly, what, what he was wishing for? He said, Putting your daughter through college, that's, that's a man's job, man's accomplishment. But it should be a little easier, just a little easier. Because that difference is everything. Since 2002, here we are in 2017, has it gotten a little bit easier? We certainly did a variety of things to make it easier, but at the same time, you've seen states really reduce their investment in public higher ed, and that then has translated into more costs for families. You've seen tuition at colleges and universities go up very significantly. That's made it harder. So on balance, I think it is better than before the Obama administration began, uh, but there's a lot of work to do. And I think the energy you see now around efforts to introduce free college programs reflects the sort of collective sense of urgency about making it easier for people to get a college degree and have the skills that they need to succeed. Is the sense of it being easier, does it change across the income spectrum? Yeah, I mean, there were some things that we did that I think did help low-income students. So increasing Pell Grants, the grants that go to low-income students for higher ed by $1,000, that made it a little bit easier. The American Opportunity Tax Credit, making it possible for families to get up to $10,000 in a tax credit for college, that made it a little bit easier for middle-income families. Certainly, the direct loan program making it easier for folks to borrow at a reasonable rate helped. But, you know, it's not enough. And there's a lot more that Congress could do. There's a lot more that states could do. And for wealthy people, it wasn't a problem before. It's not a problem now. Hmm. But for low-income and middle-income folks, there's more that government can do to help. Could you see the work that the last eight years had accomplished being undone over the next four years? Sadly, I think that's already happening. You know, so the current administration proposed huge cuts to the Pell Grant program, taking billions of dollars away from Pell Grants and directing it to other purposes. They proposed cuts to a number of student aid programs that help make college affordable for families. They are going backwards on some of the things we did to try to hold predatory for-profit higher ed accountable for taking advantage of students. I wonder why. Um, <sighs> I mean... <laughs> it's yeah. not like the, the president has any kind of, you know, private interest in predatory uh, higher education in institutions. So I don't know why he, that would be a policy. <laughs> Unfortunately, I mean, that it, you'd hate to accept that it's so transparent that it's just sort of effort to take from hardworking students and families and put it into the pockets of predatory executives and investors, but that's what's happening. Hmm. Knowing this, seeing what's happening, knowing the work that you've done, are you optimistic? It's sort of a moment when you sort of both simultaneously feel despair and hope, despair about uh, the approach of the administration, the way they want to take money away from student aid programs, the way that they want to steer money towards predatory for-profit higher ed companies, the lack of conversation about increasing investment in college affordability and completion efforts. So there's a lot to despair about in Washington. But then you look at states 
and you look at a state like Tennessee and what they're doing around free community college, uh, you look at the conversation that's happening in Oregon and New York and Rhode Island around free college initiatives, and that makes you more hopeful, right? And you look at the governors and state legislators who are trying to figure out how to make make it a little easier, just like the guy in the bar suggested. And that makes you hopeful. And there are members of Congress who are championing these issues. And, you know, we'll see what the landscape looks like down the road. But I, I think in the end, there is a broad bipartisan consensus that is possible around making college more accessible, more affordable, and putting in place the kinds of supports that students need to actually complete college with quality degrees. Secretary King, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Thanks for that opportunity. It's fun to talk with you. Okay, we're back. If you want to follow along with what Secretary King is up to now, we'll have links to the Education Trust and and their Twitter and everything on the website. Right on. During this episode, I had a President Bartlett III moment. I was more just disappointed in him. It's, it's actually a further elucidation of my disappointment in his joking altogether. There's another comment he makes later on, talking to Fitz and Leo again. No disinformation to U.S. press, right? We don't give disinformation to American press, unless it's about my medical history. And I thought, I'm kind of charmed by President Bartlett saying that, but if it were Trump... It'd be like, what is wrong with this guy and his attitude? And like, President Bartlett lets me down a little bit in this episode with his attitude towards the situation he finds himself in and the kind of flip way he deals with it. Hmm. Okay, here's my apologist theory. Sure. I think I'm only getting to it now because of what you've just said about the disinformation about his health. For lying about his health and for killing Sharif, I think the president believes that he has done his penance already. Some part of him believes that Mrs. Landingham was killed in punishment. Hmm. That's what Two Cathedrals was all about. And in the season three finale, as we discussed with Aaron, Aaron said that Simon Donovan was a sacrifice because of what he had sinned. You know, he had killed Sharif. And I think that the president has grieved. I feel like he's done penance for both of these things and has really had existential, you know, self-inflicted torture because of them. And at a certain point, he might just feel like Job in the Old Testament, and it just keeps coming. You know, this wrinkle about now Kumar is claiming that it was Israel and giving, you know, more things that he has to deal with. I wonder if at some point he's just sort of thrown his hands up and said, okay, no matter what I do, no matter how I try and make amends for past wrongs, I'm never going to get away from them. And so in exasperation, desperation, exhaustion, he resorts to jokes. Perhaps so. I think, though, you're describing a grade A narcissist (laughs) (laughs) seeing other people's deaths as, he died for my sin. (laughs) Well, she had to go. Haven't I given you enough? (laughs) Right. Why does this keep happening to me? (laughs) That really is the heart of that two cathedral speech. What was Josh Lyman? A warning shot? That was my son. I never really thought about him through the lens of being a narcissist. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I thought we talked about that. Did we not talk about that then? Oh, did we use that word? I don't know. It's what it takes to be a president anyway, I think. <laughs> yeah. Well, what's interesting, to me, there's a subtle difference. He screwed up, I think, with the medical information and keeping it secret, not sharing it and being 
uh, dishonest, and he's sort of owned up to that. He has a rationale. I mean, he thought through the difficult, you know, calculus of breaking the law technically for what he's decided is the greater good of taking out Sharif. Mm. So it's not that he's penitent. He's got to just figure out what the hell do I do now? How do we all not go to jail? How does this not explode into a multinational war? You know, there's a difference. I think he is penitent, even if even if it... Well, does he regret it? Does he regret assassinating Sharif? I don't think so. Right. But I don't think those are mutually exclusive. I think he felt like he had to do it. And I think that's part of the reason why it, now it's just resorted to jokes. He had to do the right thing, and even the right thing was evil. Yeah, I think that's true, but I, I don't think he regrets it at this point. No, no, I don't think so either. At this point, now he's got a legal issue and a potential foreign affairs disaster. Mm-hmm. But I mean, part of Jordan's response is moral. She's trying to take him on again. With, what does it mean to have justice if you... Right. And making jokes, you should have said, hey, lady, I, I need decent legal advice. <laughs> I don't need you to replay with me whether this is the right decision or something. <laughs> I need you to be my lawyer. How do we respond? What do we do now? Yeah, because of that moment where she says... Due respect, Mr. President, this isn't funny. Due respect, Miss Kendall. I'm the last person to whom that needs to be pointed out. Anyway. Okay, fair enough. He can joke if that's if it blows off a little steam. I mean, no one's laughing, including not, <laughs> including him. No one's laughing. Oh, by the way, I wanted to point out just, and maybe it speaks to the fact that this isn't the most momentous episode of The West Wing, but I was noticing lots of little things that I wonder whether most viewers think of including Air Force One. Somebody walks by and there are monitors in the background and there's kind of a news show, maybe it's a CNN or something like that. And there's a Rock the Vote logo. So maybe they're talking about the upcoming concert and event. Mm-hmm. And it was just reminding me, there are video people, team of people that need to create the content that are going to be on right. every screen that we see in the offices and on Air Force One. And here they've even gone and made something specific to you know, promote the Rock the rock the Vote event that's going to be the end of the show. It's just the level of detail and care and thought that goes into the making of an episode of The West Wing is impressive. Right. It's not like somebody turns to that TV screen and says, oh, look. Right. No, exactly. This is just a two seconds walking by, but, you know, yeah. I kind of caught it. And another thing I was thinking is we get a reverse. I've pointed out that beginning of the staircase and then the hallway is on another stage and leo and jordan they come from the opposite direction they come down the stairs and then into another Mm. hallway and one of the things uh that i don't know if most people know that there's especially when you're making a big move in the middle of shooting a scene you have to remember then whenever it is three days later or six hours later when you're filming the next part of the scene what hand was she holding her bag in was his was his jacket buttoned or not buttoned. And so that takes people like the script supervisor to notice all the little pieces of continuity that have to be maintained and wardrobe people to notice how you were wearing, what you were wearing and all that. Just thought I'd shout out to all those departments. Mm-hmm. Clearly in the Rock the Vote scene, CJ has been working out because Allison has some guns on her and she's obviously feeling very good about the shape of her arms because she does the whole scene like holding them up. <laughs> and she's gesticulating as we can laugh. I was like, Allison knows she looks good. She's like, I'm going to highlight my arms. There was one part in the episode, in that section, after CJ's offstage, where they talk about the pros and cons, you know, the reasons why they ought to bring forward this college tax credit idea. Right. And Toby says, There are a lot of reasons not to do it. But during the first campaign, the president said there were two kinds of politicians. The ones who try to say yes and the ones who try to say no. We're going to throw these guys out because they want to say no. 
And I applaud the sentiment of, especially in this moment where they're talking about closing corporate loopholes for million dollar bonuses. Yeah, it's and very it's easy to get on board with that. Yes. But the underlying sentiment of what he's saying is liberal politicians are good yep. and anyone who isn't is not. Correct. <laughs> that is that is the message. <laughs> and while I believe that that's what they believe, it's couched in such a sort of morally emphatic and undeniable way. Right. That I was no like, question. Well, really, you're just talking about two different styles of Completely. governing. Yeah, that's true. And CJ says, well, I guess if we're going to get thrown out, I don't want it to be for that. It's like, y- you won't. You are liberal Democrats. Right. That's not why you're going to get thrown out. <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> that's not going to be the thing. That's that's not what you do. What do you think about the Title IX subplot? There wasn't much meat to it. Yeah, it's barely a subplot. Yeah. Basically, it made me think about men's and women's soccer. The men's national team not making it to the World Cup for the first time since 1986 or something like that. And the women's team is fantastic. One of the reasons that the women's national soccer team dominates the way it does is because of Title IX and because of the lack of similar legislation in much of the rest of the world. And I think there's a great book about it. It's probably a great documentary to be made too, or maybe it's been made, about how Title IX and funds and you know this legislation that prohibits a discrimination between the sexes and education led to many more young girls getting into this sport and funds towards it. And uh, as a result, we have this incredibly dominating, fantastic team. Yeah. It's used, I feel like in the episode, largely to remind us of Josh's chauvinism. Donna has a good (laughs) little clap back at the end of the episode. If a college football team cut back to 70 scholarships, they'd still be three deep at every position and have a fourth-string punter and place kicker. 15 scholarships, it's a wrestling team. A lot of sports metaphors in this episode, too. President Bartlett refers to uh, what he should say in his remarks to the teachers about whether or not to talk about the... uh, Campaign at all. Right, or the explosion, or whether you should campaign. He refers to it as a 7-10 split. Like, we get a bowling metaphor. He is from New Hampshire. Nerd. So, so you, you maybe it's a candlestick. Imagine. It's a candlestick exactly, metaphor. It's a candlestick. I was, that's what I was going to say. I love the he's referring to. Love candlestick bowling, by the way. I'm from Massachusetts, so it's really the only kind of bowling that I I knew growing up. I've always wanted to open a. Uh, maybe we can do it together. A candlestick bowling and bar in L.A. There is a place. No. On the east side of Los Angeles. Yeah. For candlestick bowling? I think so. I Get think there's a, there's a place that used to be Mr. T's Bowl, and now it's been reopened as this very fancy pants place called the Highland Park Bowl. I haven't been there, but I think that it might be Candlepin. Oh, love me Did I say candlestick? Bowl. I meant Candlepin. Oh, did I say candlestick too? <laughs> I think I did too. Candlepin. Candlepin. We'll drop it in. Oh, there's a little moment that I thought was, I, I interpreted as a possible self-reflexive bit of writing. Speaking of copy, is there an advance on the speech to the teachers? An advanced copy of text? You must be new. Can you tell us what <laughs> you And I thought this might be something that I wonder if someone asked Aaron, you know, can I have see next a week's copy script? of the script, you know, like a few days early? And, That's and, funny. Uh, Entirely possible. That is very, yeah. very possible. Debbie Fitterer, she gets it right. President Bartlett. Yes. President Arsenic. <laughs> it's a thin hook on which to hang his decision to hire her. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's a, it's because I'm a, sure some assassin at one point has said, I mean, John Wilkes Booth might have said, I'm going to kill President Lincoln. <laughs> right. Well, you called me President Lincoln. Why don't you join me f- uh, for the theater tonight? It just <laughs> doesn't really make sense. But 
still kind of like the moment and I like the shot of her standing there. And I like her sort of exaltation at the end when she gets the job because she's been so buttoned up. Earlier in the episode, she has a moment where she out dries Bruno, where he comments on, on her name being sort of... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but it was a funny name. It's not ha-ha funny, it's just... You know, okay. She's so dry, she doesn't respond at all. <laughs> right. <laughs> so it's kind of fun to see her clench her fists in victory. Mm-hmm. And I like her admission to Charlie. Who can I talk to? I want this job, Charlie. I didn't before, and I do now. Yeah, I do too. Makes yourself vulnerable. Mm-hmm. As annoying as Leo's levity in the Situation Room is, I do like the way that he orders his lunch. <laughs> I've been thinking a lot about an egg salad sandwich on a Kaiser roll. If it's Milos making the potato salad, then potato salad. If it's not, then a potato in any other form will be fine. That line, a potato in any other form will be fine, cracks me up. <laughs> that reminds me of, uh, what's the Dave Eggers book that made him super famous heartbreaking work of staggering genius he's in a recurring fashion he refers to potatoes prepared in the french manner <laughs> really makes me laugh i think that's the phrase he also thinks that in three or four forkfuls he'll figure it out and then he'll okay, no yeah. longer be addicted oh dear okay let's take a quick break and when we come back we'll speak with amy mann The West Wing Weekly is sponsored by Squarespace. Squarespace will help you build the site for whatever your idea is. If you've ever had a cool idea for a new website, you can do it with Squarespace. You can showcase your artwork. You can blog. You can publish any content you can come up with. You can sell products and services of all types. We use Squarespace for our own website, thewestwingweekly.com, which by now I'm guessing you've probably seen. If not, you should check it out, thewestwingweekly.com. It's an example of a Squarespace site that was easy to put together and is easy to maintain. Every time we come up with a new idea for the site, it's quickly accomplished. It's true. In fact, I use Squarespace for my own website outside of the West Wing Weekly. It's rishikesh.co. It's my own personal page, and I use Squarespace for that. So check out Squarespace. They help you make it, whatever it is you're trying to make. Go to squarespace.com slash westwing for a free trial, and then when you're ready to launch, Use the offer code WESTWING, and you'll save 10% off your first purchase of a website or a domain. Go to squarespace.com slash WESTWING. And now, back to the show. Joining us now is Amy Mann, who, as we mentioned, appears in this episode as herself, singing James Taylor's Shed a Little Light. Amy Mann has had a storied career since 1983 when she was in the band Till Tuesday, and then when she began her solo career in the 90s, she was nominated for both an Academy Award and a Grammy Award for her song Save Me, which was in the film Magnolia. She's been on TV, she's been in movies, she's great in this episode. And before we get to the interview, just to mention, while there is no commercial release yet of her cover of James Taylor, the West Wing Weekly, as an interested party, we're trying to see if there's some kind of arrangement to be worked out. No promises. If we can, we will bring it to you. I was not in the studio for this interview. It was a rare moment where I had to call in. Thanks, Josh, for carrying the in-person bulk of the responsibility. For now, we want to talk about your appearance on the West Wing. I guess the first question is the origin story. How did it happen? How did it come about? Well, I was, uh, as I was telling you before this started, I have a terrible memory. 
and I can, I can barely remember anything about this event. I tried to set you at ease by yeah. offering the fact that I also have a terrible memory. And soon we'll be talking about episodes that I'm in for which I have no substantive additional information to provide. <laughs> yeah. So the bar is low. Yeah. I was there. I don't remember how this happened or why. I th- my vague impression is that Aaron asked. Did you know him prior to doing no, it? No, I didn't. And as I say that, that seems unlikely. It seems really unlikely. I think somebody else suggested me. It doesn't seem unlikely at all. He's a music fan. He has... I think, very good instincts for what type of music to use in his projects. It sounds entirely plausible that he reached out. Yeah, I can't remember. I mean, I remember want to, having wanted to feel flattered, but having the feeling that perhaps somebody had suggested me to him, and then he was like, you know, sh- sure, I guess, I, but I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Sometimes we must choose to feel flattered. Yeah, I'm <laughs> going to choose to feel flattered. Were, and were you a fan of the show at that point or aware of it? Oh, or? my God, yes. A huge fan. And so I was really thrilled. I think I was probably a little surprised by the song choice. So the song choice wasn't your idea? No, 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 no. That, oh, so it was presented to you? Yeah, it was presented to me. And of course, you say, yes, sure. Because, uh, you know, it was like, a, for the West Wing, that's a whatever-you-want scenario. That's I would think that's a, a, a bigger ask, though. I was surprised because, I, in general, when you ask an artist to be on your thing, you it's because you like their songwriting, you know, their songs. So that's the only reason I, I was not totally sure if the choice of me was Aaron's or somebody else's, because I'm pretty sure the song was Aaron's choice. And I remember discussing it with the music supervisor and going like, oh, (laughs) a James Taylor song, and kind of getting the vibe of like, well, Aaron's uh, music tastes tend to stay in a certain zone. The dad rock zone. Dad rock? Yeah, 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 yeah. We have a playlist of songs he's chosen that we call Cool Sorkin Jams. (laughs) Yeah, I think this was a Cool Sorkin Jam. I'm not going to say it's my favorite James Taylor song, but I was fine with it. I think it was a little hard to figure out how to sing it because it is it is kind of an odd song. What is that process like, figuring out how to cover a song that you didn't choose and maybe wouldn't have? Yeah, I think that we probably—there was a producer I was working with on a project. His name was Michael Lockwood, so we uh, I recorded it with him. My husband, Michael Penn, reminded me that he sang background vocals on it. And I said, no, you didn't. Like, I have no no memory of that whatsoever. Uh, And he actually said, yeah, I'm kind of proud of the background vocal part that I came up with. And I'm like, (laughs) so he wanted to make sure that, that I got that in. But I had no memory of that. Do you remember where you recorded it? An engineer named Ryan Freeland, who I work with all the time, his home studio in Los Angeles. But so there's this two-step process, right? Because I imagine you have to make the song first and then go and lip-sync to it yeah. on camera. Uh-huh. And how much time did you have to learn the song, arrange it, record it, and then perform it on camera? It wasn't super rushed. You know, I think I had some reasonable notice. Yeah, because to recording it, I mean, it, you know, that does take a little time. We had, like, actual musicians we had to corral and everything. Yeah, we had time to figure it out. Was there a lot of back and forth between you and the West Wing about the actual recording, or did you get to sort of say, this is how I'm going to do it, and that was it? I think we just used the original, you know, as a bassist. You know, we kind of did a straight cover. I mean, I haven't heard his version in in years, so I'm not sure how closely we followed it. But I do remember feeling like 
this is just not a song that's in my style at all. And so I wouldn't know. It's like, I'm not going to try to, you know, make it my own. I'm just going to do a version in a key I can sing it in and try to do a good job. It's interesting. I listened to it on the way over to talk to you, and I hadn't heard it in a long time. And I, I like the song. Your version has, sounds more stripped down, less sort of studio. There's this kind of a studio-ish sound to the original that I think pales compared to your version. Your version kind of gives me chills in this episode. Oh, thank you. Uh, episode. Thank you. I mean, I'm sure I probably did try to make it maybe a little more straightforward and a little less soft, a little less dad. Mm-hmm. But it's a pretty dad song, you know, like, to, you know, it kind of grooves along, chick to chick chick you know. <laughs> I didn't really know how to make that a totally different experience. So a little bit of my own flavor, but that's about it. And then is it a nightmare day, lip-syncing it for hours and hours, or...? Were they able to lose that? Day? How it long did it take? That wasn't too bad. Yeah, it wasn't over and over. I was mostly in the background for a, a Bradley scene. And so that was just kind of like once I sort of realized like my lip syncing is not really featured right now. I'm just kind of in the background. Then I didn't worry about it so much. But did that get old really quickly? I, you know, I think. <laughs> Especially I've... having to watch it. Brad act in the foreground. <laughs> Here we go. There it is. <laughs> I'm trying to lead you someplace. Seven minutes in. <laughs> I'm trying to lead you someplace, Amy. Come on. <laughs> it was only a matter of time. <laughs> oh, man, I overplayed my hand. <laughs> well, I was, you will be delighted to hear, a huge fan of Bradley Whitford. Oh, dear. Look, deep down, somewhere deep, deep down, I think I am as well. And I was uh, just beyond excited to meet him and see him in action. So however long that day was, it could not have been long enough. And did you chat with Brad and Janelle and Mary Louise Parker's in that scene as well, I guess? Did you get um, to hang out with any of them? I chatted with uh, Bradley and Mary Louise a little bit and met Janelle. Who else was there? I think that— Is Allison also? Janny? Allison and Janny was there and also Bare Naked Ladies, maybe? Did you— I don't. I think our things didn't intersect. Hmm. Where was that scene shot? It was in the Hard Rock, right in Los Angeles, on Sunset Boulevard. Subbing in for Hard Rock in Boston. They are very similar. I thought it was House of Blues. Oh yeah, House of Blues. Sorry, House of Blues. Oh, sorry. Oh, so it actually get, was at the House of Blues it in was Los at Angeles. The, yeah, House of Blues. Yeah, I get them mixed up. <laughs> Fair enough. I guess you've done music videos all your career, so lip-syncing on camera probably wasn't totally foreign to you, or did it feel like something new? I mean, it was essentially doing a music video. I remember I, uh, because you get, you know, some after money, I got, like, all my friends to be in the band. Oh, that's cool. So so everybody I knew who was a musician, I was like, be be in the band, you know, so they could get, because everybody I knew was, like, completely broke. (laughs) <laughs> so, it's like, oh, there's five people on this recording, but 25 on stage. Oh, yeah, exactly. There's, 25 feet there's like two background singers, and yeah, like we had like a tambourine player. Yeah, I do remember loading up. <laughs> like, I feel a little bad about that. But really, like all my friends are so broke. You know, they were like, we need this $500 or like you whatever. Want Amy, man, yeah. you got to hire the whole band. <laughs> I know. It's a package deal. <laughs> And you've, you've always been politically active yourself, yes? I would say not always. Only, oh, fair enough. Yeah, yeah, not. Now that the world is about to end. Yeah. Now's a good time. Yeah, no, I'm calling my congressman. Um, but back then when you did this, was the fact that the show was a political show, did that appeal to you? I mean, it did. You know, I have to say, like, I wasn't, I didn't know anything about politics until I watched The West Wing. There was something that was really nice. It was one of the things I really liked about this show. It was often over my head. 
But I liked that. I liked the idea of seeing people talk about stuff I didn't know anything about and maybe having to look it up or ask some questions or just or shut up and listen and learn. And there's there was something that was really nice about that. Like, I like to feel like I'm learning something and I like to feel like I'm you know, sort of metaphorically around people who are smarter than me. I don't, I'm not one of those people who wants to feel smarter than other people. I like to learn stuff. So that was one of the things that was really appealing about the West Wing. It, it introduced me to a, a whole different world. Yeah, I feel exactly the same way. We talk about that a lot. It's one of the rare shows that's usually a step or two ahead of the viewers rather than watching a show where you're waiting for the show to catch up to where you know it's going. Yeah, yeah. And I feel the same way when I was just a fan of the show before I was on it, there were things that would spur me to go learn a little bit more about what was whizzing by me. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it, it didn't stop to tell you. It didn't have like a, that spoon feedy feeling that some shows do where they just assume you're a moron. I like to feel like, oh, they're assuming that I'm not a moron. I, I better not prove them wrong. <laughs> I got to live up to what the yeah. show is asking of me. Yeah. Do people remember your performance on the show? Uh, yeah, every now and then I'd, people will tweet at me and say, yeah, I'm watching, rewatching The West Wing. And I have to say, like, we've, M- Michael, my husband, Michael and I, uh, Michael Penn, I call him yes. Michael Penn, full, his full name all the time. <laughs> we've probably rewatched The West Wing three times at least. So I have seen, Truly. you know, I, I did try to watch the episode last night. Of course, that was the night Apple TV did not work. Um, we hear that a lot too. It was really well. He just <laughs> interview yeah. subjects come in and explain that they attempted to watch rewatch the episode, and, but <laughs> technology would not so, cooperate. It's so maddening. Uh, he had just gotten a new phone, and he was that was the controller, and then there was some loop of passwords leading him to other passwords, leading to other passwords. He lost his mind, and, and uh, that's then I went to bed. There wasn't a fifteen year old around to help you <laughs> watch right. the show. That's right. But we did see a pretty pretty re- like within the last I don't know year and a half I think you go back to the show and rewatch it yeah and y- and I'm going to guess you've heard this uh, several times too it's comforting to know that there are smart people in the world somewhere even if they are not currently running our government that it's possible that those people exist it's the reason I'm you know enjoying reading Hillary's book it's comforting to know that there are people who could solve these problems if we'd only let them we just have to vote for yes them. or try to make sure that voting is a thing that we can still do. Also important. Also important, yep. Not to diverge too far from the West Wing, but as a point of comparison, can you tell us about your work on Buffy the Vampire Slayer? Mostly the thing I remember about that, (laughs) this is so sad, I had one line, and it was one of those things where, (laughs) this is always why I think acting is hard, where uh, one line, and I could not say that f***ing line with en- with any any sort of naturalness or meaning or impact or anything. I must have said it 25 times. Well, perhaps counterintuitively, I think the less one has to do, the harder it is. Because I played many single line yeah. or two line roles. And it's just like, well, I've got six words. I could emphasize any of them. Let me try it this way. Let me try it that way. It's kind of easier <laughs> if you get a little flow into the dialogue. Yeah. I think my problem was I thought, oh, it's one line. I'll just say it. And then you, then you say it, of course, and you turn into like a weird 
robot who's like, how do words work? <laughs> yeah, it, that was so it was terrible. So my memory of that is not that great. But I've enjoyed you in Big Lebowski, Portlandia Big more Lebowski recently. Big Lebowski was in German, though. That's true. That's so much easier. Because uh, nobody understands German. That's just einfach. That's right. <laughs> nobody understands German. I'm fascinated about the Buffy West Wing thing because they happened in such close succession, or at least those episodes, I think, both came out in the fall of 2002. Oh, is that right? I must have been on somebody's list for, like, have her be in your television program. That's what I was wondering, yeah. <laughs> you... I probably had a record out or something. Got to promote. I was around. Yeah. I remember at the time, Magnolia was still fairly recent, and it just felt like you were in my life everywhere. You were everywhere. Oh, everywhere I, like, I, I, like I that. listened and looked. Yeah. I think that should happen again. Where I'm everywhere. She wants it in your life, Rishi. Where I say Let her in. three lines in German, <laughs> and then I sing a song on a TV show. And then everyone buys your album. Yeah, that's right. Could we interest you in co-hosting Western Weekly? <laughs> I would be delighted to. Yeah, you could come back anytime and discuss an episode as a fan. I would love to. Do you have favorite episodes that jump out? I do. It's the Sam episode with the woman who comes to him the Alger Hiss mm-hmm. one. Yeah, somebody's going to emergency. Somebody's going to jail. I almost can't even talk about it without crying. It's so amazing. It's so amazing. I'm really I'm like getting, I'm getting verklempt just thinking about it. I think that the surprise of... I mean, you know he's going through this thing with his parents and his father and whatever, but you sort of forget about it. And then when you realize how he's projecting his his family situation onto... You know, the situation with the woman in in the FBI and stuff. I think it's just really masterful, you know, because it's a thing that we all do. And it's so impactful when you realize that, you know, that you're bringing stuff from the past to the to the situations in the present. Aaron is very good at the sneak up on you emotional payoff. Yeah, it's amazing. I've actually thought about what a musical about that episode because it's just something that's really amazing about it. I'd like to give a shout out to another connection to all of these things, tying everything together, your song, Patient Zero, from your 2017 album. First, you talked about it with me for Song Exploder, but then also you the music video for it features Bradley Whitford. Bradley Whitford! <laughs> so can you draw a straight line or maybe a crooked line from doing that ep- this episode of The West Wing to Bradley being in your video? Uh, just a straight line from being a fan of his and thinking he's awesome. I'm mainly saying that so Josh just, like winces. I like him too. <laughs> I think he's adequate. Uh, was it fun to work on that with him? <laughs> it was great. I mean, I don't know if you saw the video, but he, um, <laughs> we wanted him. Is it? You seen the movie The Dresser? It was like in the 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, I love that movie. Yeah, so it's sort of based on that. And, you know, so we wanted him to play, a, you know, not Shakespeare's, but a real actor, a real theater actor, a real thespian. And so he was super hamming it up, and it was just so delightful. <laughs> well, we'll post that music video on our website along with this episode. And you're about to go on tour, like literally about to go on tour. Yeah. Um, you're wearing a T-shirt that says Europe, and you're going to so, Europe. So it does. Yeah. Where, where are you going, and how can people get tickets? I don't, I don't know, on a website. Yeah, I feel like I, <laughs> I might have, have written it down. Let's Amy see if I'm Man, really good at AmyMan.com. Slash tour. Yeah, there's t- tour. Uh, it's not that many shows. I think three in Germany, Dublin, London, Antwerp. 
when this episode comes out, you will be already past your German dates, unfortunately. So, so sorry, German fans, if you're hearing about it right now. <laughs> oh, I see. Yeah, we're, uh, was, that was the yeah. unhelpful plug. Yeah. <laughs> but if you are an early listener and you're downloading this today on the 26th, go see Amy Mann in London tonight. And then Dublin and Glasgow after that. And then are you going to come back here and play? I don't think so. I think my touring's done. I mean, I'm sure there'll be things here and there, but the touring for the last record is probably, you know, the bulk of it is probably over. And that's Mental Illness. Yeah. And I love that album. Thank you. Do I? Go out and buy it. Buy it. Yeah. Don't borrow it. Buy it. Just buy it. It's it's nice and depressing. It'll fit the mood you're in. <laughs> it is a good album for these times. Yeah, and it is a lot about mental illness, so you will recognize perhaps yourself, perhaps people you know, perhaps people on the television. <laughs> well said. Amy, thank you so much. Before we wrap up completely, I just want to make sure, are there any memories from the episode, from making it, surrounding it, or watching it later, that stand out for you that we haven't talked about yet? I remember it was very dark. I remember seeing it later and being very grateful that I was well lit and looked pretty good. You look great in it. Thank you. Yeah. I remember going to a sort of dressing room area before, you know, when I first got there. And um, Bradley and Mary Louise were doing some kind of crazy yoga warm-up thing. And I remember thinking, oh, actors. I know. when You, you acted as if there was some sort of stretch for him to play a hammy <laughs> thespian in your video. Like, <laughs> that's my memory of every day I worked with him. His legs are back behind his head, and he's doing some ridiculous vocal warm-up and bouncing around like a maniac. Like, dude, take it down that's a notch. so actory. <laughs> Oh, he's so accurate. I I loved it. (laughs) I was really taken aback. (laughs) That's right. So Mary Louise, too. Yeah. Ah. Yeah. It had the tone of, let me show you some moves. This will be good good for your instrument. (laughs) Oh, very good. Yeah. Yeah. My instrument. Oh, dear. Well, thank you so much for talking to us. You are welcome. It's my pleasure. And that wraps it up for another episode of The West Wing Weekly. Thanks for joining us. Check us out next week also, when we'll also be doing also (laughs) the West Wing (laughs) Weekly. You can find us online on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and our website, thewestwingweekly.com. You can leave a comment for us any of those places, and we'll find it. And why not, if you truly in your heart feel this way, give us a little five-star review on iTunes. Many thanks to Zach McNeese and Margaret Miller, our post-production team. Thanks to Radiotopia of which we are a proud part, Radiotopia is a collection of fabulous, story-driven podcasts. You can check them out at radiotopia.fm. Among them, you'll find Rishi's other podcast, Song Exploder, his oldest child, if you will. On our website, we'll link to the Song Exploder episode with Amy Mann for the song Patient Zero. Right. And we'll also link to the video so you can see the vi- you can see Bradley Whitford Boo. in yet another role. You can catch me on Scandal Thursday nights, ABC, 9 o'clock, 8 central. You can buy a pin or a challenge coin by clicking on the merchandise button on our website. Radiotopia is brought to you by the Knight Foundation. Okay. Okay. What's, What's next? next? Our thoughts today to Martin Luther King And recognize that there are ties between us All men and women living on
the earth Ties of hope and love Sister and brotherhood Radiotopia Big thanks to Adzerk for providing their ad-serving platform to Radiotopia.